In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. It is my joy to welcome to our pulpit this morning Bob Dannels. Many of you know Bob because he served on our staff here for a few years. Bob was the rector of the largest Episcopal church in the country for many years and retired, but then was called out of retirement to do many interims. He has finally retired again, I think, to Jacksonville and is uh, a member of this parish and often can be seen in our pews. Um, but because he is so gifted, we occasionally have to urge him out of retirement um, and to be with us and speak to us. So it's such a joy to have you this morning, Bob. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dean. It's great to be back in our home congregation. If you said to my wife that I was pondering uh, retirement, this is her response. <laughs> it is good to be back at our home church and to be in Jacksonville. So have you ever been justly accused for something you thought or said or did? If you haven't or it's been a while, then take heart. Today in our Old Testament text, the prophet Micah is justly accusing us. The way he paints this picture is to portray a, a large courtroom seemingly outside. And in this courtroom, we join the people of Israel and we're being justly accused. For what are we being accused? For forgetting forgetting that we believe in a loving God who gave us our life, put the very stamp of divinity in each of us, that God has given us a home and community and relationships and a vocation and work to do and a livelihood and meaning and purpose in our life. And when we were in slavery, God freed us. When we were sick, God healed us. And we are being justly accused for forgetting for living life on our own and disregarding all that God has given us and done for us. <laughs> in response to the prophet Micah's words and indictment, they and we come up with an old ploy, by the way, that we exercised when we were children. Remember when your mother told you 10 times to clean your bedroom and you didn't, and then you said to her, the reason I didn't clean it is because I didn't know I was supposed to. That's what they're saying in the courtroom, and that's what we say quite often, is I didn't know what you wanted me to do. Micah then says, God has told you over and over and over again what brings life to your soul. But here it is again, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God. Jesus echoes these themes in the gospel text, the first part called the Beatitudes, which is our gospel text for this morning. For the preacher, it's a banquet of themes, <laughs> reminding me of the mosquito that was at the nudist colony who said to itself, I know what to do, I just don't know where to begin. Let's begin 
where Jesus begins. In the Sermon on the Mount, he seems to pick up the third requirement first that Micah names, and that is to walk humbly with God. If there was one gift that I'd like to give current society, it would be the gift of humility. The inspired gift that when you and I finish this journey that we're on in faith, that we would be able to say with the psalmist, redeem me, O God, for I have walked in humility. Notice it's not just something we talk about, it's something we do. And it's not a gift, by the way, that each of us can give to the other. We do not have enough within ourselves to give ourselves the gift of humility. And it's not a gift that we can give overnight. It's not something where you can snap your finger like driving through fast food restaurant and just pick up the sack and take it home. It's cultivated over a long period of time. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer faced sure and certain death by the Gestapo in World War II, he wondered out loud from the Tegel prison what the next generation would need. This is what he had to say. What church and society will need, what the next century will need is not a people of genius, not brilliant tacticians, nor people of means, but simple, straightforward, faithful, generous honest men and women who, listen, walk humbly with God. But as I say, it's a gift that then cultivates a lot of other gifts. It's a process. We go through stages to mature this gift. The first stage seems to me to be that you and I would accept the raw material that God has given us. There's a whole lot of people, however, when they look at the life that they've been given, disdain it, discharge it, reduce it, diminish the raw material where it doesn't ever flourish. You know, there's a move in Scrabble, those of you who like games, there's, in Scrabble you can make one move and when you've received all your letters and put them on your little tent, and then you look at them and you don't care for your letters, you can, in one move, throw them all back into the box and receive all new letters. That's what some people would like to do with their raw material. I don't really like what I've been given, the hand that I've been dealt. I'd like to throw them all back in the box, thank you very much, and receive all new letters. But it's not possible. You and I, in gratitude and humility, are invited to receive the raw material we've been given and to enable it to flourish. For some of us, it takes a while. When Liesl Brooks was 11 years old and living in Germany, she discovered that her parents had been Nazis. Her father was already deceased. She was being raised by her mother. When she learned this news at 11, she went to her mother and screamed at her and said, you're a murderer, you're a criminal, and you've made me an untouchable. She drifted. She went to a boarding school in England, and then she made her way to the United States, all the way out to Los Angeles. 
She was living in an old tenement in Southside LA. Some neighbors invited her to what we might call a second chance church. <laughs> and it was there, Liesl Brooks tells in her memoirs, that I discovered myself, the worthiness of myself, and in humility that I was to exercise my life for the sake of others. There's a second stage of receiving and maturing the gift of humility, and that is to own the bad chapters that have already been written. Oh, we have a few things, right, in our novel that's being written about our life where we'd like to disregard those parts, just forget that we ever said or did those things. We'd like to actually rip them out of the book or press delete on the computer button, but we can't. We did it. We said it. We went that direction. We made the mistakes, and we're invited in humility then to own those chapters that are already part of our life's journey. You'll remember that the prodigal son in that great parable, when he went off to a far country and was found in loose living and he squandered his life and his inheritance, he was in a pigsty. We're told in Luke's gospel that he came to himself. That's the moment, isn't it? It's owning the bad chapters that have already been written. He decides in the parable that he's going to go home. He thinks he's going to discover recrimination. What does he receive? A parent who runs out in love and gratitude and hugs his child, welcomes him home, restores him to full status in the community. There's a third stage of cultivating the gift of humility, and that is to cultivate an unabridged conscience, an unabridged conscience. You may remember Miss Watson asked Huck Finn one day, I heard there was an accident down at the river. Was anyone hurt, she asked. Huck responded, no ma'am, no one was hurt, just two Negroes and an old mule were killed, but no one got hurt. You and I read those pages now and we cringe. Part of the reason we cringe is because we've been caught short, haven't we? Each of us, by thinking or saying or doing something that diminished the worth and the respect of someone else or some group, we find it so convenient to have an abridged conscience to find someone to pick on, to find someone to cast out, to diminish someone. Jesus invites us in the Sermon on the Mount to consider what an unabridged conscience might look like, to see everyone as he sees them, as a child of God, as carrying the very stamp of divinity of loving neighbor as self. There's a fourth stage, and that's where I want to loop back into Micah's text. 
I believe that you and I cannot live into the second, the first and second requirements that he names until we cultivate the third. That is, I think walking in humility then leads us into the action of the first and the second requirements, and that is to do justice and to love kindness. In humility, you and I are invited then to do justice, to do right by other people, to set up relationships and structures and society and economics and theology and spirituality in such a way that all people have access to the benefits of God. No one's left out. We're all part of being siblings one with another. To do justice means to see the other person as Jesus sees them and to treat them the way that Jesus treats them. But not to do it with begrudging attitude. That leads us to the second requirement to consider how you and I would do justice, but not just to do what people deserve or what they want, but in fact, what they need. When you bring groceries here, is it because you have a generous and joyful and kind spirit or because Kate has made you feel guilty? (laughs) Bring bags of groceries, okay. I've got to get that bag of groceries, huh? Or putting your arm out to the blood mobile this morning. Or, 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 fill in the blank. The second requirement is to love kindness, to enact a joyful spirit that when you and I serve the neighbor, it's life-giving, isn't it? It's life-giving and to do it with joy, with kindness. Wow, does our world need kindness these days. There's a mean spirit that's hovering over our society. And Micah wants us to love kindness. What a wonderful gift. Last summer, I just happened to tune in to a movie that I had never known about It's called, A Man Went Up a Hill and Came Down a Mountain. It's about a little village in Wales right before World War I. They've learned from the British government that if you have a mountain that's at least 1,000 feet high, then you will receive a a defense. They'll build a defense on the top of your mountain to protect your village. They learn about this, they want one. They know that their mountain is at least a thousand feet. And so the surveyors come in this process to discover this mountain. The villagers all wait in the pubs and the shops down below. The surveyors go up, they come down with the news. Forlornly they say, I'm sorry to tell you that you do not have a mountain, you have a hill. It's 983 feet. 16 feet short of reaching the scale of receiving the defense from the government. What did the villagers do? Beginning with the youngest. Children, I want you to listen in right now. This is about you. And teenagers, 
stop what you're doing, put down your cell phone, and adults, this is all ages, they each went to their houses in this little village in Wales and they found buckets. Everybody had a bucket. They began one by one, step by step, bucket by bucket, taking dirt out of their garden and their yard and carrying it up their hill until their hill became a mountain. People of St. John's Cathedral, I know you to be a people who want to do well by others. None of you that I know of wants to seek injustice. You want to do what's right for the other. You want to love kindness. You don't want to create more meanness. You want to be an agent of loving kindness. It requires of all of us, according to Micah, then a measure, a large measure of humility. It's cultivated by owning your raw material to see divine stamp built into you. To own those chapters that need forgiveness to join that prodigal coming home and receiving that embrace, to cultivate an unabridged conscience, not just here in church, day by day, out there, and then put our lives to work to do that justice and to love that kindness, bucket by bucket, by bucket until our hill becomes a mountain. Amen.